This is Dominic Preziosi with the second part of our two-part episode on the El Paso Massacre one year later. On this episode, our assistant editor Griffin Olenek and audience development director Milton Javier Bravo talk with Dylan Corbett and Marissa Lamone, both of the Hope Border Institute in El Paso. And I speak with Bishop Mark Seitz of the El Paso Diocese. Our guests today speak to other issues, some of broader significance since the shooting last August 3rd, including immigration policy, electoral politics, and the role of the Catholic Church in confronting racism in American society. My name is Dylan Corbett. I'm the executive director of the Hope Border Institute. And I'm Marisa Limon Garza, Deputy Director of the Hope Water Institute. We are a, a binational faith-based research and advocacy organization on the U.S.-Mexico border. So thanks, Dylan and Marissa, for being here. The past year has proved particularly challenging to live and work at the border. Apart from some of the scattered images we've seen in the media, like children in cages or asylum seekers camped along the bridges, most of us don't have a clear picture of what's happening there now. Could you bring us up to speed? Sure. In many ways, what the administration has done is sought to invisibilize what's happening on the border. And so many Americans, because uh, we're not seeing pictures on the news of uh, mass detention or immigration camps, refugee camps at the border, or the images of children in cages. None of that means that what is happening at the border is any less cruel. The administration has simply acted to make it more and more invisible and to push the reality of what is happening to the other side of the border, to communities in, in northern Mexico. But the fundamental dynamics are still the same. I think most Americans would actually be shocked to know that our historic commitment to asylum as a country has been shattered by this administration, and that's never been more true than, than in the past year. And under the pretext of the pandemic, what the administration has done has really ended asylum. Over the last almost four years of the Trump administration, uh, brick by brick, they have taken down this fundamental commitment to asylum that we've had. So what does that look like? That looks like individual border patrol agents, in their language, agents who are working on the line, right on the U.S.-Mexico border, sending back, pushing back, throwing back migrants back to the other side of the border and making asylum determinations, which are supposed to happen with an immigration judge. Right now, the government is running roughshod over laws that are meant to protect children. We have a law in this country that was signed under the Bush administration. It was a bipartisan law intended to guarantee the safety and security of children crossing the border so that we wouldn't send them back into situations of danger, so that we wouldn't send them back into situations where they might be trafficked. And now the U.S. government is simply expelling them willy-nilly, sending them back to their countries, their home countries, and that too is against the law. We've seen policies like Remain in Mexico, even though the courts have attempted to intervene and stop these illegal programs continuing. So here in our community, just on the other side of the wall, you have a large community of migrants who are there waiting for their time, waiting for their day in court, who are enduring, many of them, brutal conditions. 
and they've been there for a long time because this is a very lengthy process. It's meant to be lengthy. It's meant to exhaust them. It's meant to tire them out and wear them down. And it really represents a betrayal of our country's commitment to refugees and asylum seekers. Has there been any legal resistance to these actions? And and how does Border Patrol, for instance, how does the Department of Homeland Security justify the illegal actions that they're taking? The Trump administration has not, you know, they don't feel themselves particularly bound by the prescriptions of the law, quite frankly. Much of what they do is illegal. The fact is the administration doesn't care. They don't care if they skirt the bounds of legality. They don't care if what they do is patently and expressly illegal, they will do it. Because what we're, what we're seeing is not, uh, they're not acting in furtherance of the law. They're acting to use the tools of militarization and criminalization and the vast federal apparatus that we have here at the border to support those strategies and weaponize them, weaponize these systems against immigrants for political purposes. And that's what this is really about. This is a politics of fear. This is a politics of xenophobia. Yeah, and while these actions are are illegal and inherently thinly veiled by this administration, they do sometimes have roots in actual you know laws and policies. So we're looking at the impact of Title 42 within the U.S. Code, which is couched under our public health and welfare. And this is how the pandemic is being used as a pretext to seal the border and to end asylum. It's manipulation of current uh, policies and rules and regulations for the administration's gain to further the agenda that Dylan was describing. One thing, you know, in the last couple of weeks that we've seen, the last couple of days even, we've seen many of the agents, Border Patrol, ICE, who work in border communities uh, carrying out these strategies of criminalization and militarization now deployed to other parts of the country. I'm thinking of places like Portland. And so the militarization as a A strategy for addressing social issues is now being exported into the interior of the country, just as as the administration is basically saying that there's a state of exception now here at the border uh, because of the pandemic, so can engage in the express violation of fundamental human rights and the fundamental right to asylum. Now we're exporting those same agents of militarization to other parts of the country. And other Americans, I think, are waking up to the reality Uh, that this is something that should trouble us all. As we think about what's happening on the ground in a local space like El Paso, I'm wondering, given the uh, November election and the possibility of change if Democrats defeat Donald Trump and take the Senate, I wonder what Hope Border Institute would like to see in a Biden presidency. The November elections certainly offer an opportunity for a a shift politically and an opening politically towards restoring some of the damage that's been done 
over the Trump administration. The question remains, I think, whether this shift will be a moment of transformation for our country or whether this will be another presidency that will be more about uh, perhaps limiting some of the damage. In many respects, Biden has been has not always been on the right side of, of every issue. He was the face of the Obama administration's crackdown here on the border, which in some respects served as a prelude for what we're seeing now. Um, it's certainly much more radical. It's certainly much more cruel. But there was a crackdown that we have to remember that took place under the Obama administration in a significant way on migrants and arrivals here to the U.S.-Mexico border and even here to El Paso in particular. Both parties, in, in many respects, have been responsible for the building up of this major federal apparatus at the border that dehumanizes, criminalizes migrants, and that has militarized our border communities. If Biden uh, were to win the presidency, the bar would frankly be very high. Most Americans today, the, the polls bear this out, support comprehensive immigration reform. Most Americans uh, support the legalization, granting of citizenship to DACA students and to our dreamers. Most Americans are opposed to wall building uh, here on the U.S.-Mexico border. And so we'd expect a very strong commitment from the Biden administration to following through on these commitments that we frankly didn't see during the Obama administration. When we talk about comprehensive immigration reform and, and the policies that do enjoy support among Americans and among people here in border communities, we're talking very specifically about bringing the 11 million people who are in the shadows right now and putting them on a path to citizenship. We're talking about making sure that we put families first and that we allow for reunification. And we're talking about things like making sure that we address root causes, not that we send aid packages to Central America to help them militarize their own countries, but rather that we expand our aid in a sensible and reasonable way to address the, the drivers of migration that are pushing people from Central America to the United States. And that includes leadership on things like climate change. That includes leadership on things like ending the drug war, the failed drug war, and addressing the consumption of drugs in our country, which is driving so much of the, the violence in Central America right now. That includes making sure that those governments are strengthened so that they can guarantee the safety and the human rights of their populations. Whenever we do or don't get any type of immigration reform, what inevitably happens is we get further militarization of the border. And then if we do ever get some type of, of reform, there is an amnesty for some individuals, but not everybody, and we don't account for future flows. So we need to make sure that we build a system that's flexible and accounts for future migration flows. One of the things that I think is very critical, especially for, for communities of color in particular, in this awakening, reckoning, resurgence, much needed resurgence of focusing on racial justice. We saw during the debates that Vice President Biden was quick to gloss over the 1994 crime bill and double down on how that was of such great value and stood his ground on that when we know that so many people have been incarcerated. 
their lives have literally been taken away by this crackdown. And, and we know that here in borderland communities, but we know that throughout the rest of the country. And so there's power in, in naming that. There's power in owning it and conveying that to the American public that I think would bode well for someone who's going to be leading a nation after so much upheaval and unrest and trying to chart a path forward. And we're not just talking about history here. You know, when you look at what was the legislation that was passed just a, a few months ago, the CARES Act to address the pandemic, there were billions of dollars in there that flowed to local police departments across the country with no type of accountability, uh, no ways of ensuring um, that those monies were used uh, in furtherance of actual community safety. And so, uh, you know, Democrats have also contributed to the militarization, not only of the border, but have used militarization as a strategy across the country to address social ills uh, like poverty, to address the consumption of drugs. And we've seen militarization instrumentalized as a strategy, as a, a technology of oppression, particularly of racial oppression. And that's what we're seeing. And so I find it very ironic that just prior to at the beginning of, of the massive demonstrations across the country in reaction to this throbbing vein of continuing injustice and racism against African-Americans. The CARES Act itself was contributing to the militarization of our police departments across the country. I'm wondering, Dylan and Marissa, if you could talk a bit about some of the concrete initiatives that Hope Border Institute is involved in on the ground. One of the things that we've been doing for the past several months is developing partnerships across the United States. So bringing border communities into conversation with communities of undocumented immigrants throughout the United States, and then also into conversation with grassroots communities in Mexico and then in countries of Central America, specifically Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. Thinking about some of the folks that we've been working with, I'm thinking about Nahun, who is a grassroots organizer working in Honduras against really the expropriation of local communities, uh, the, the displacement of people from their communities and their land by multinationals, corporations which are going in and robbing the land of its minerals and water and, and attempting to build mega crops and so forth. And in, in that process, they're displacing people who have no other option but to migrate. But he's there working in his community day in and day out, confronting the government, confronting policies which enable this type of injustice to happen. Just this week, he let us know that four of his fellow co-workers were kidnapped they were targeted because they're engaging in this work on behalf of their local community. He himself has just been infected by COVID-19. But these are the folks who are on the ground working to save their communities and to rebuild their communities. These are folks who do not want to migrate. They're folks who do not want to have to abandon their land, their communities, uh, and their country. One of the most important elements of HOPE's work has really been in leadership formation. And one of the projects right now has really been focused on, on youth engagement. 
And some of that effort is related to engagement in what is seen as political. Culturally, there can be a, a shift, right, in our Catholic communities or a, a a distancing of, of I don't I don't go into the political realm. I come to my church for my faith. I come for a reprieve. I come for sanctuary. I come for for prayer and not necessarily for political engagement. But we know that our faith mandates that we be we be political. And so in this space we are doing voter engagement efforts and really helping people understand locally on a hyperlocal level as well as we're doing it at this international level is What does it mean to vote and elect people to represent you? What does that mean to have elected representation in your community that takes care of your community, whether that be from the school districts to the county judge to your city council? We're very in tune to what is happening with the local mayoral race. And so much of the work is related to engagement. Communities of color, in particular the Latinx community, is is kind of seen as a sleeping giant when it comes to voting and why haven't we turned out and voted. But taking a little bit of a different tack is really looking at the ways that voter suppression, especially in Texas, has reared its ugly head. You know, Texas is one of those states uh, across the country that has been subject to the Voting Rights Act. And sadly, the U.S. Supreme Court decision that came out through Shelby versus Holder in 2013, a lot of the efforts to get preclearance from the federal government regarding voting were, were, were stood down. And so now we've seen a continuing uh, downward spiral where we have policies and practices that are making it harder for people, Latinx communities like the ones here in El Paso, folks in general, just to be able to engage their right to vote. You know, we're trying to get to a U.S. census that includes all people that would help shape who represents us and how many representatives we have and what kind of resources we'll get. But we know that as as recent as 2019, our our Secretary of State here in Texas tried to purge over 90,000 potentially illegal voters from the rolls. He ultimately resigned. Those 90,000 people were able to vote. You know, a lot of other states across the country were able to vote by mail in their recent primary elections or their recent elections, but Texas didn't necessarily enjoy the same privileges. Here in Texas, uh, you have to apply to vote by mail. And the Texas Supreme Court came out with a ruling that Not having immunity to COVID was not enough of a condition to make you eligible to vote by mail. And so people literally took their lives in their own hands while going to the voting booth. We don't have mask mandates necessarily at the same ways we're seeing in other communities. And so it was mask optional at the voting booth. And people here locally wore their masks and they social distanced and the county took extra efforts to make sure that voting was as safe as it could be. We have to recognize that as much as we want people to get out, share their leadership, share their voice, that there's so many obstacles directly in place to mitigate that, that we have to pay attention to it. And we have to make sure people have a plan A, a plan B, and a plan C, just to be able to exercise their right to vote in Texas. Given the work that you have done in El Paso, working with parish, pastoral, and lay leaders, and as you mentioned, with the, sort of the next generation of, of young adult leaders, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what credible leadership looks like at all levels in church and society. To be a credible leader is to be really grounded. In our context, we're talking about 
grounded in the Catholic faith and putting that into action, action that is robust, action that is alive, action that is contributing to a better society and a more just world, the kingdom of God on earth, if you will. And we see many models of this across the country that maybe it's not necessarily clergy-led, but it's really a specific models within the Catholic Church that are giving us hope. So out of Chicago, we know that efforts with Pastoral Migratoria have been robust in reframing how parishes engage their Hispanic ministry and how they really connect with people through this kind of format. And it's 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 a model to follow. It's a model that's being replicated in, in dioceses across the country. And it's an effort that really has shown great promise and great results. You know, I, when I think about leadership in the church, I think, I think that, to be honest with you, that our church has fallen victim to the, the polarization that's present in the broader society. And it has colonized our political imagination. We're, out, we're unable to think beyond oftentimes the strictures of, of right and left and conservative and liberal. We need to move beyond these sterile, febrile debates um, that, are, that are so self-referential. And I think we need leaders today who are able to transcend these narrow strictures and narrow boundaries and show us that we need to return to a model of the church where we are actually incarnating brotherly love. I think Pope Francis has tried to do that with his gestures of mercy and show us a God who is in solidarity with us. So we need people who are not necessarily perfect, but are willing to incarnate a God who is in solidarity with those who are on the margins. Dylan, Marissa, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Bishop Mark Seitz, the Bishop of El Paso, Texas. And thank you for being here today, Bishop Seitz. Pleasure to be with you. I want to talk first, if I might, about your pastoral letter from last fall, Night Will Be No More. It's not something I think we typically hear from bishops. You named racism and white supremacy in the United States and connected to the past and present violence experienced by marginalized groups. I wonder, why did you feel compelled to name racism and white supremacy in your letter? In so many ways, I'm still learning. Mm -hmm. But on August 3rd, I was forced to do some quick study, you might say, because when that young man drove nearly 700 miles to come to our community in order to kill people of color, especially immigrants, we all had a course, you might say, in the reality of racism and white supremacy in our country. And a bishop is nothing if he's not a shepherd to his people, if he doesn't feel one of them, and that when, when they are hurt, he also is wounded. And so I felt that hurt very deeply. 
And perhaps what one can read in the letter is the rawness of that wound that I felt along with my people. Given your work in Texas, I wondered if maybe you'd comment on your experience of ministering to the Latino community and the lessons you've learned over the years. Well, ministry to the Latino community is is something that I gradually found myself in the midst of, and it began back when I was newly ordained, when the bishop sent me to a parish and did something rather unusual at that moment. In my letter of assignment, he didn't only say, I want you to go to Good Shepherd Parish in Garland, Texas. He said, I want you to begin the first Spanish Mass in that parish. So at that moment, my uh, ministry to the uh, Latino community began. But, you know, it's interesting. You, you walk into these waters that are so unknown, feeling very ill-prepared. With My limitations in Spanish were tremendous, but I found such a warm reception from day one, such patience on the part of the people I was attempting to serve, and I fell in love with them. I fell in love with the culture, with the goodness of the people and the depth of their faith, the way that their faith was integrated in, into their lives. It was something that I had just had glimpses of in my own upbringing, and in a certain way it fulfilled a longing that I realized was there. I'm wondering if we could maybe turn a little bit to the recent events of uh, the spring of 2020, early summer of 2020. Uh, you recently made national and international news by taking a knee during a Black Lives Matter prayer service. It was a symbolic gesture acknowledging racial injustice and police violence in this country. And I, I understand it also led to a call from Pope Francis. I wonder if you could maybe tell listeners about how the moment came to be and, and what you expected to communicate with the gesture. So, first of all, after the killing of, of George Floyd, certainly my heart, along with the heart of so many people in our country, was deeply moved and offended by what I witnessed there in, in the video. And then I watched as the protest movement began to develop steam and, and even begin here also in El Paso. And I knew that the church needed to be there. The church needed to show its solidarity and support with our African-American brothers and sisters. So I was looking for the right way, the best way that I could show my solidarity. And the idea was, let's be there as people are just beginning to gather for the demonstration. And let's have a moment to just kneel for those eight minutes and 46 seconds in prayer. Let's bring the church's faith to bear on this moment and this expression. And that's what we did. It seems to have touched a chord, even as far as Rome.
what would, if you're able to speak to this, what would an anti-racist Catholic church in the U.S. look like? You know, I don't think in a certain way it's for us to define all of the aspects of it. What an anti-racist church needs to be in the first place is a church that is willing to listen, a, a church that is willing to be present in the midst of the lives of those who are the victims of racism. An anti-racist church is a church that reaches beyond our walls, which too often are, are far too homogenous and, and uh, closed. An anti-racist church is one in which we go out, as Pope Francis so often has urged us to do, and express our solidarity with those who are on the peripheries, those who are poor, not only in the material sense, but in the sense that they are looked down upon and discriminated against because of where they come from, because of the language they speak, because of the color of their skin, because of their education, whatever it might be, that we are present with them. And then having listened, perhaps we will be able also to work with them to provide, not to speak for them, but to provide the opportunities for their voice to be heard. So you've become something of a, of a visible presence in, in the borderlands surrounding El Paso and Juarez, and uh, you've crossed bridges into Mexico, often fully vested. You've witnessed firsthand the effects of the policies, the immigration policies of the Trump administration, uh, which has lately also been using the coronavirus as, a, as another reason to uh, seal the border. In a recent statement, you claim that, and I'm quoting here, the fundamental right to asylum here at the border really is effectively over. And I'm wondering if you could just maybe explain what you mean by that, how so, and, and in what ways is the local church trying to change this? Asylum no longer exists for our country. The policy of, of our nation right now is to say, really, no one may cross. Although the administration has often said we're against illegal immigration, that is not shown to be the case in their actions. Asylum is a right that was enshrined in international law and United States law since the Second World War. And there are other aspects of immigration law that permitted people to seek to come to our country. And none of those are have been left without being impacted. There is no area of immigration that has not been seen as somehow a negative for our country and not been uh, attacked in a certain way. So it's a very sad development, uh, in my opinion, and 
in the ter- in terms of the church's teaching. It's not just a personal thing. The church has always said people have a right to immigrate when they when they are not able to support their lives and their families. They have a right to seek another situation. There is no one living in this country who, if they felt that they could only protect their their family and feed them adequately or so on, uh, would not seek to go someplace else. There's also a prior right, and that is the right to stay at home, not to be forced to immigrate. So from the standpoint of church teaching, we need to make sure that we're not just building a wall around ourselves and saying, I'm going to just keep everybody out and live for myself or for the sake of the few people that I love. The teaching of Jesus Christ calls us to far more than that. Jesus says, if you love, just love those who love you, what good is that? Don't the pagans do as much? That's right. The pagans do as much. And unfortunately, it seems that very often today we live as the pagans and not as disciples of Jesus Christ called to see one another as brothers and sisters. What would you say to people if there was a way to sort of suggest a hope for something or what what we might be able to look forward to on this in terms of uh, not only the treatment of asylum seekers, but of immigration reform in this country? Well, of course, as a Christian, I'm a person of hope. <laughs> you know, I see, I try to see with clear eyes the uh, threats and the difficulties uh, that are present in the world, but I, I live in hope in the one who has overcome sin and death. So we all need to maintain that kind of hope and never, never give up even when the times are very, very difficult. But uh, something else that gives me hope is that I'm, I also believe in the goodness of, of our nation and of our community. And I think our best lights have always been there. And something that in the midst of, yes, so many imperfections and and sins, we can still see that there has been this ideal that has driven our country from its beginning. And that is an ideal that has been open to the world, uh, has seen that uh, God has given us a new opportunity to be a place of refuge, uh, to be a place of welcome. That's symbolized by the Statue of Liberty at New York's harbor. Those best lights, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, that is a big part uh, of the DNA of, of our nation. And I trust that, that, that those better lights will ultimately win the day. We'll get through this time of nativism, this time of isolationism, and we will find an opportunity to reclaim that which is at the basis uh, of the of the goodness of this country. Bishop Seitz, I want to thank you for taking part in this discussion today, and, and it was a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you for your work.
Thanks for listening to this special two-part episode of the Commonweal Podcast. A reminder, if you've missed anything or would like to listen again, you can find both parts on our podcast page. The Commonweal Podcast will be on a brief hiatus for the rest of the summer, but we'll be back with new episodes after Labor Day. This is Dominic Preziosi. Thanks for listening.